0: Year 1977. An escape disease that caused the red flu pandemic but didn't make much of a splash. How would you feel if you meet a dinosaur in your local city park? Not a vision or an imitation, but a real, living dinosaur. This is exactly the feeling that scientists experienced when examining influenza patients in 1977. What had died out many years ago suddenly appeared before them alive, active and dangerous. And a year later, a British professor committed suicide. Can there be a connection, direct or indirect? This is Labora Verum. My name is Ed Canalosh. Greetings. So, year 1977. It's the first year of Jimmy Carter's presidency in the United States. The US confirms that Panama will gain control of the canal by the end of the 20th century, and indeed, this will happen in 1999. Spain breaks with its past under the Franco dictatorship and holds its first democratic elections. Cambodia starts a war against Vietnam and Somalia attacks Ethiopia. Then Xiaoping returns to power in China in the result of a coup d'etat that just nine months ago ousted the Gang of Four, the Maoist faction of the Chinese Communist Party. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat becomes the first Arab leader to pay an official visit to Israel. After 24 years, the Soviet national anthem receives text again, this time without Joseph Stalin's name. Now the anthem can be sung. With a new replacement of some words, it continues to be the anthem of the Russian Federation. A German terrorist group called the Red Army Faction kidnaps and murders industrialists, businessmen and politicians, and hijacks an airplane during the so-called German Autumn. Unidentified terrorists shoot left-wing demonstration in Istanbul. This event is known as the Taksim Square Massacre. Yugoslavia Prime Minister, his wife and six others are killed in a plane crash. The last guillotine execution and last legal beheading in the West took place in France. The deadliest plane crash in history occurred after the Canary Islands, killing almost 600 people. There was a complete blackout across New York City that lasted from one evening until the next morning, leading to widespread looting, arson and crime. Both airports were closed. In the summer Greece had a temperature of 48 degrees Celsius, that's 118 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a record for continental Europe. Actor Charlie Chaplin and singer Elvis Presley died. Actor Orlando Bloom, Singa Shakira, singer Psy, a president of France Emmanuel Macron, are born. The first movie of Star Wars is released. The start of sales of Apple II. Italy is the first in history to use fiber optics for telephone communications. Space Shuttle Enterprise makes its first test flight from the back of a carrier aircraft. British Airways launches regular flights on its supersonic Concorde aircraft. The SETI Big Ear radio telescope receives a radio signal from deep space, dubbed Wow signal. Scientists identify a previously unknown bacterium as the cause of the mysterious Legionnaires' disease. The rings of Uranus are discovered. Gene splicing is used in practice for the first time. Bacteria are forced to produce insulin. And it was in that year of 1977 that scientists had been puzzled by the new influenza pandemic. The disease was relatively mild. It killed about one quarter of the usual number. There were about 8,500 deaths from it in the USA. For comparison, the Hong Kong flu in 1968 caused the death of 36,000 Americans. Still, the disease spread all over the world. As it turned out later, the first cases of this flu were diagnosed in northern China back in May, However, this new flu became known only in the autumn, when it was registered in far eastern regions of the Soviet Union. Since the first countries were the leading communist powers, the new pandemic was called Red Flu. By winter, the pandemic spread throughout the USSR, continental Europe, and Great Britain, and in January of the following year of 1978, it was registered in the USA. So what puzzled scientists about this flu? Three features. First, It didn't infect anyone over the age of 21. Flu seemed to select only children and youth. Second, the virus was extremely sensitive to temperature, too sensitive. And finally, and most puzzling, it was an extinct virus. It belonged to the same virus group that caused the Spanish flu during and immediately after the First World War. This group became completely extinct in the late 1950s. Its reappearance was as impossible as the dinosaur's reappearance. In theory, evolution could take a strange path and shuffle the genes so that a dinosaur reappears, but in reality it's simply impossible. It's as impossible as writing a poem with blocks of letters, shaking the box and hoping that the poem reappears. And still, this is actually what scientists saw in Red flu. The influenza virus is not a single biological species. There are four different biological species. In fact, the difference between them is so great that they form four different biological genera. Each genus consists of one species. Their names are easy to remember. A, B, C, and D. All four genera can infect humans, but only the first three can cause a noticeable illness and only one influenza A is responsible for the true flu, the genuine flu, the serious conditions that we ordinary people would call flu. Only this genus, the influenza A virus, causes pandemics. The influenza A virus is constantly, relentlessly, continuously changing. The changes are subtle, the virus definitely remains the influenza A virus, but it's never the same, it's slightly different every time you encounter it. You can think about it as about changes in your car, You can change the color, tires, mats, or headlights in your car. The car will become a little different, but it still remains your car. These changes explain why our immunity developed in the last flu season never fully works in the new flu season. These changes can affect any component of the virus, but to distinguish one variant from another, scientists have chosen certain markers that are easy to identify. These are two proteins that are located on the surface of the virus. These proteins are called H and N. H stands for hemagglutinin, which is responsible for the ability of the virus to stick to the surface of our cells. In lab, but not in our bodies, this protein also causes red blood cells to aggregate together, hence the name, which means blood glue in ancient Greek. is neuraminidase. In the past, the molecule on the surface of our cells that N targets was called neuraminic acid, hence the name. N breaks the chemical bonds established on the surface of our cells by protein H. Thus, it appears that the N works in opposition to the H, but in fact they work in concert. H makes sure that the virus has found the right cell in our body. It does this through a simple test. If H is able to stick to the surface of a cell, that's the right cell. When it's confirmed, N allows the virus to peel off and get inside the cell. Constant changes in the virus slightly alter these two proteins. To date, H has been observed in 18 variants and N in 11 variants, so by combining these two markers to date, about 198 viral rearrangements, or subtypes as they are called, can be identified. Each variant of each of these two proteins is assigned its own number, so you can distinguish one H protein from another by saying, for example, H3 or H18. The same is true for protein N. You've probably heard names like H1N1 flu or H3N2 flu. This is how scientists distinguish one virus subtype from another. H3N2, for example, means Influenza A virus with type H protein number 3 and type N protein number 2, H3N2. This does not mean that viruses of the same subtype from different years are identical, as we remember the virus is constantly changing. So no, virus variants even from the same subtype are different. The fact that they all belong to the same subtype means only that all these variants have the same H protein and the same N protein. They are closely related more closely than to variants of another subtype. It's like human families, the fact that certain people belong to the same family does not mean that those people are identical, but it certainly means that they are closer to each other than to people from a different family. An extinct H1N1 virus caused the pandemic of 1977. The virus variants that belong to this H1N1 subtype caused the Spanish flu of 1918-1920, continued to circulate for several decades with permutations weakening the virus, underwent a relatively significant genetic change in 1947, and finally disappeared in the late 1950s. But how can a virus, especially flu virus, get extinct? The influenza virus dies in our body when we, those who have flu, recover or die. We cannot have flu indefinitely, sooner or later we will either recover or die. That is, all copies of that virus in our body will die. To survive, before this happens, the virus must jump to someone new. That is the way the flu virus lives, it jumps from one victim to another. When the virus cannot find anyone to jump to, it dies forever. When does the flu virus get extinct? If a victim is in a desert and there is simply no one around. It's rather exotic. More common is when everyone around has immunity to this virus variant, either vaccinated or has previously had this virus and recovered. This is exactly what happened with the H1N1 virus in the late 1950s. Everyone around either had flu caused by it or had been vaccinated against it and the virus died out, forever, disappeared, was not found anywhere at all. From 1957 our seasonal flu was caused by a different subtype of the influenza virus – H2N2. In 1969 H2N2 was replaced by H3N2. However, believe it or not, in 1977 H1N1 suddenly appeared again. Now that it has miraculously revived from extinction, the virus has joined natural subtypes of influenza virus and continued to circulate alone with them. It is still in circulation, today. Using the genetic tools that were already available at the time, it was found that the virus was virtually identical to a variant of the virus that circulated during the specific flu season in 1949-1950. And this virus was different from any variant of the same subtype that circulated before or after. It was specifically the virus of 1949-1950, and no other. Now it was clear why red flu affected only children and youth. Anyone over the age of 21, meaning born before 1957, was immune to that virus. These people were exposed to it before it died out. They either had flu caused by this variant of the virus or were vaccinated against it. Twenty years later, in 1977, these people were still immune to this specific variant of the virus. Only those born after 1957 did not have immunity, they were born after the virus variant disappeared. Much more difficult to explain was the temperature sensitivity of the virus. And related, but no less intriguing mystery the sensitivity quickly decreased and soon disappeared completely. Just if it was something unnatural, artificial, something that could not be sustained. But before it disappeared, then, in 1977, 9 out of every 10 isolates of the virus showed temperature sensitivity. In nature, this temperature sensitivity is unusual, but it was, and still is, a key characteristic of the virus used in so-called live flu vaccines. When you develop a live vaccine, you weaken the virus to the point where it can no longer cause disease, but is still alive and kicking otherwise. In this case, we develop immunity to it without the risk of getting sick. Temperature sensitivity, as one of the signs of weakening of the virus, usually occurs only after a series of significant manipulations and selection. This is called attenuation, and respectively the vaccine is called attenuated. In the 1970s, attenuation was the main method used to develop influenza vaccines. That immediately gave a version of what happened. Someone decided to make a vaccine against the H1N1 flu virus, and that virus escaped from the laboratory during the process of attenuation. How? For example, in the process of virus weakening, the vaccine was manufactured too early, the virus was not fully attenuated, and the vaccinated people got sick. Given that the vaccinated had to be under the age of 21, otherwise people would be immune themselves, there are only a few potential groups of people they could test a new vaccine on. Most likely, these were conscript soldiers. And since we are talking about communist regimes, this does not look too extraordinary. But why would anyone want to develop a vaccine against an extinct virus? We remember that the first case of red flu was registered in May 1977. 14 months earlier, in March 1976, US President Gerald Ford made a televised announcement about the start of an emergency mass immunization program against the so-called swine flu. Pigs have their own flu that can infect humans, although very rarely. Since the mid-20th century, when it became possible to identify influenza subtypes, only 50 cases of influenza transmission from pigs to humans have been confirmed. That's five-zero, 50. Transmission of such a virus from person to person is even more rare. Two months earlier, in January 1976, several Fort Dix soldiers came down from the flu. One of them, who took part in the five-mile forced march, died. All those with symptoms were tested positive for the common human influenza A virus, but two samples tested positive for the H1N1 swine flu virus. That specific virus variant was very similar to the virus that caused the Spanish flu, which killed about 100 million people between 1918 and 1920. This similarity explains the overreaction of the US to the situation. Approximately a quarter of the U.S. population was vaccinated against H1N1 swine influenza virus that year. It's likely that someone behind the iron curtain decided that they, too, needed a similar immunization program. Obviously, a vaccine based on the actual swine influenza virus that caused flu in that US military base would be most useful, but since this virus was not available, vaccine developers used human H1N1 virus. Not quite a match, no strong protection, but better than nothing. It is this sense of urgency may have led to the use of an incompletely attenuated virus. This version explains everything and, obviously, it was voiced almost immediately. Chinese and Soviet scientists denied it quickly and fiercely. It was the 1970s, a time of a certain warming in the political environment, no one wanted to cause tension. In addition, the public may have developed doubts about the vaccines in general, despite the fact that this was only one case that occurred in communist countries behind the Iron Curtain. But most importantly... The cooperation of Chinese and Soviet scientists was critical for the early detection of seasonal influenza pandemics. Therefore, red flu was officially recognized as unexplainable. Moreover, several theories were developed that tried to give at least some explanation. One of them was that human influenza virus could infect birds and persist in their populations. Evidence has never been found. Other researchers announced that they found the H1N1 virus in the melting waters of the Siberian ice. After a series of corrections, the authors finally acknowledged that the reported isolation of the virus was a contamination with a standard influenza strain used in their lab as a control. Today, thanks to modern genomic analysis and to observation of the circulation of the 1977 H1N1 virus for more than 40 years, the escape of the red flu virus from lab is considered proven. Although red flu is the most famous case, it's clearly not the only one. Yes, red flu infected millions of people in both the old and new worlds, but another much smaller case had a more profound effect on how we deal with the biohazards today. Surprisingly, this happened almost simultaneously with red flu. In August 1978, a medical photographer at Birmingham Medical School, England, died from smallpox. Smallpox was one of the most contagious and deadly human infections. In the last 100 years before its eradication, it killed half a billion people. In the 18th century, the century when Edward Jenner developed the first-ever vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, the disease killed 400,000 people each year. At that time, one of every seven to ten children born in Europe died of smallpox. At least six European monarchs were killed by that disease, a third of all cases of blindness were caused by it. However, when the Burmese photographer died, Smallpox was on its way to being officially declared eradicated. The last case of natural infection was registered in a hospital cook in Somalia in October 1977, 10 months before the Birmingham death. Since the Somalia case, there has not been a single wild case of smallpox in the world. The thing is that smallpox can only infect humans, the virus simply cannot survive in animals, or in air, water or soil, only in human bodies, therefore the absence of sick people means that smallpox has disappeared from our planet, at all. The complete eradication of smallpox, by the way, is the first eradication of a disease in history. It was officially announced two years later, in May 1980. But this is about wild smallpox. The death in Birmingham occurred after the last wild case. And we already understand that it was caused by the virus that escaped from a lab. The medical photographer had a dark room located above the smallpox lab at Birmingham Medical School. The lab was planned to close fully by the end of that year of 1978, and work at the lab was accelerated to complete all projects in time for the closure. According to one of the versions, air from the lab centrifuge, which apparently contained smallpox particles, seeps through the old insulation into the ventilation ducts. The photographer got infected, and she infected her mother. 500 people were quarantined. The mother survived, but the photographer died. This death is the last recorded death from smallpox. Also photographer's father died. He died of cardiac arrest while visiting his daughter in the quarantine ward of the hospital. The day after the specific strain of smallpox that caused the outbreak was confirmed, the head of the laboratory, a world-renowned virologist and professor at University of Birmingham, committed suicide by slitting his throat. Incredibly, this case is like a déjà vu of a smallpox outbreak in the same area 12 years earlier, in 1966. It was also about a medical photographer who worked at the same medical school. The photographer contracted a mild form that went undiagnosed for two months, leading to 12 more cases. All infected survived. In total, from 1963 to 1978, that's 15 years, there were only four wild cases of smallpox without a single fatality and 80 cases with 3 deaths of smallpox due to various laboratory errors. The Birmingham incident resulted in the destruction of all smallpox stocks in the United Kingdom. Currently, smallpox is stored in only two centers in the world, the CDC in the United States and the Vector Institute in the Russian Federation. Our biohazard procedures have been radically revised around the world and the way we deal with dangerous infectious agents today is larger based on what happened in Birmingham. Well, that's it for the story of virus escapes from labs for today. If you would like to know more, I would recommend to read Kilburn's Influenza Pandemics of the 20th Century and Formansky's Laboratory Escapes and Self-Fulfilling Prophecy Epidemics. You can find a more detailed list of references, along with the key points of the story and many other stories, in our Facebook page. It was at.